Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Ellen Condor-Lagerman, the Levy Institute Research Professor at Bard College, where she's also the Distinguished Fellow in the Bard Prison Initiative. Formerly, she served as president of the Spencer Foundation and as dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. The author or editor of 11 books, Professor Lagerman has spoken extensively in the fields of education, the history of education, and philanthropy over the last 30 years. Her new book is Liberating Minds, The Case for College in Prison, published by the New Press. Professor Lagerman holds a Ph.D. with distinction in history and education from Columbia University, an M.A. in social studies from Teachers College at Columbia University, and an A.B. cum laude from Smith College. She lives in Ghent, New York. For more information, head to www.bard.edu. We'll talk to Professor Ellen Condor-Lagerman about all of her accomplishments and more. But first, welcome, Professor Lagerman. Thank you, Alan. That's more than I like to hear about myself. Well, it's been a long time since you and I met up over chicken at my house. That's right. Uh, but I'm delighted to see you. Well, this is so interesting. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, decided that he would start an initiative about paying for uh, college education for for prisoners. Um, and he got the hell beat out of him. Um, what was that about? He sure did get the hell beat out of him. <laughs> What it was about was what people call fairness. They claim it's unfair to educate, quote-unquote, convicts when other people are struggling to pay for college. And they have a point. It's, in fact, very difficult for many people to go to college. And the problem is the United States is short-sighted in terms of who it lets go to college. We ought to have everybody going to college for at least two years, as Bernie Sanders and then belatedly Hillary Clinton said. But I'm not sure that's on the agenda right now. Well, it's interesting because when you were writing the book, Donald Trump wasn't the president. (laughs) Right. They were different days when I was writing the book. There was a movement under President Obama, which clearly was for straightening this country out, for, for being more fair to people, for making sure police departments didn't beat the hell out of people, for getting consent decrees. We're seeing all of that reversed right now. Right. Uh, got anything to say? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, in terms of what I've particularly focused on, college and prison, Obama was courageous enough to start what he called an experimental Pell Grant program to enable people in prison to be eligible for Pell Grants. They had always been eligible for the same financial aid as anybody else. Ellen, I'm sorry, remind everybody what the Pell Grant is again? I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. The Pell Grant is the main federal financial aid to help people go to college, and it's income-based so that, for example, people in prison, most of whom are poor to begin with, would be eligible for Pell Grants. And they were all eligible until 1994 when Bill Clinton signed the largest crime bill in the history of the United States, which included as an amendment a program to take away Pell Grants from prisoners, take away Pell Grant eligibility. And when that happened, almost every college and prison program in the country collapsed. The ones that have operated since then have mainly been operating on private fundraising, as, for example, the Bard Prison Initiative does. And the experimental Pell Grant program that Barack Obama started was a step toward reestablishing the right to Pell Grants. And what's the future look like? Well, fortunately, the experimental program runs for a number of years. So we have to hope that in the next election cycle, the Democrats will not only hold on to their seats in the Senate, but gain more leverage. Yeah. 
I want to go back to something you said earlier about the concept of, quote, fairness. Look, we all know if you're very poor in New York State, college you get paid for if you're knowledgeable enough to get it, right. uh, to ask for it. But if you are making 40000 bucks a year and you're paying for your kid to go to SUNY and the SUNY costs maybe 20000 bucks or something by the time it's all done, then you don't think it's fair that a prisoner is getting paid for. And I think that's a fair sentiment to say it's not fair. The middle class or the lower middle class in this country has been squeezed terribly. And to think that on an income of $40,000, and there may be more than one child involved, you can afford what SUNY is now having to charge because the state investment in higher education has been cut is just not true. I mean, people can't do that. So we need to provide more public funding for higher education in general. Well, now, Ellen, you are an incredibly achieved, I know this is incorrect English, <laughs> woman. You've done so much. So uh, the first thing I want to ask you is this. Can you take us back to the first day you ever walked into a prison? Oh, yes. I am not a criminologist. I knew nothing about prisons. The first day I walked into a prison, I was there to teach. And a colleague of mine from the Bard Prison Initiative took me in, and he took me to the classroom door, which had glass on it, and he said, here's your class. And I looked in, and there were 16 or 18 guys sitting in a semicircle, all in green New York State prison uniforms, and I thought I'd faint. But one of them, Wes Keynes, who's written about in my book, opened the door and said, Professor Lagerman, we've been waiting for you. And so I had to walk in, and once I walked in, I began teaching, which I know how to do in my sleep. Well, what did you expect you were going to see? If I, don't know, I don't know what I expected, but I... You know, most people don't go into prisons, and I hadn't—I hadn't been in a prison. And I go in and out now of prisons all over New York State, and I know the routine, and I don't think much about it. But what was your impression of the ambiance? Because I remember the first time I took a class from New Paltz into <laughs> into right. a prison. Whoa, you know, this is pretty depressing. Well, I was at a, a prison that, called Eastern in Napanock, yeah. New York, mm -hmm. and the classroom was in the school wing of the prison, which actually is a rather cheerful-looking place, relatively speaking, given that it's in the, in the prison. And the students in the class were extraordinary. All I needed to do was walk in, and they all said, good morning, hello, how are you? And then once... Better than at SUNY, I can tell you that Oh, one. they're fabulous <laughs> students. <laughs> It, my my quote-unquote deal, I hate using that word since Trump became president, but my deal at Bard was I didn't have to teach. And once I started teaching in prisons, I've been teaching ever since because the students are so interesting. Now, what courses have you been teaching? I've been teaching the same courses I taught at Columbia and at Harvard and NYU. And they are? They are history of urban education, history of American education, public policy and education, social policy and education. So how is that helpful to them? Oh, it's, it helps them think. It helps them argue. It gives them historical background. I mean, it doesn't help them the way a narrow vocational program would, but it helps them much more in terms of giving them the background. I mean, they're citizens. They need to understand what's going on in this country. They need to understand the social circumstances from which they came, and they haven't had a chance to do that in the you country. You don't think they know that? There. If they were oh. born poor on Lexington Avenue in New York and their mother was shooting up, you don't think that they understood that they were at a disadvantage? Oh, of course they understood they were at a disadvantage. But they don't understand the way public policy has shaped that disadvantage. And that's very important, I think. Well, what do you mean? Could you explore that? Well, yeah. tax policy, um, welfare policy, Social Security policy, education policy, urban policy, 
redlining in urban areas, all of that. Okay, that's all good. But let me ask you this, Ellen. You're not telling me you don't think that they knew that they were screwed in terms of every one of those things you just mentioned. They knew they were screwed, but they didn't know the history of redlining and where it came from and what can be done to change it. And they hadn't articulated and developed the skills to articulate in debate, written and otherwise, what they need to do to get rid of it. Yeah. Okay. Has there ever been a disturbing moment uh, in a prison for you where somebody got out of control? No. Very frankly, I think if there were trouble in a prison where I was, the guys in the Bard Prison Initiative would protect me and would protect the other people because they really love us for what we're doing. There was a story in, in the Village Voice, I guess it was, a number of years ago when I taught at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and there was a guy I taught with a sociologist, I believe, named Umansky. And Umansky told a hysterical story about a cop who comes in, and he's, you know, obviously drunk. (laughs) (laughs) And he's carrying on, and Umansky begins, who is a fierce liberal, begins to feel really threatened. And he notices that the cop is putting his hand over his gun. So after he leaves, he says to the other cops who are hanging around, he says, boy, that was really something. You see, he was touching his gun, and one cop turns around and says, don't worry, teach, we had him covered. (laughs) (laughs) Which is pretty much what your story is. That's very similar to what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But it's true, they do. They, they, um, And of course, they have to be on their best behavior, right? Because, I mean, after all, this is a privilege for them. Yes, but I heard you on the roundtable talking about the current effort to raise the age at which juvenile people can be considered for adult detention. And in fact, many of our people were locked up when they were 16, and they were locked up because they made a stupid mistake. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be punished for what they did, but to punish them as adults and lock them away for 12, 14, 16, 20, 25 years with very few opportunities to turn their lives around just doesn't make sense. Well, if I was Archie Bunker, I would be arguing with you. (laughs) Yes, you would. And my argument would be, come on now, you know, a 14-year-old can kill you with a gun or kill your kid with a gun just as easily as an adult can, and there has to be zero tolerance for that. Well, I think people who commit violent crimes, any kind of crime, should be punished for it. I'm not against punishment. But I do think that when people are put in constricted places, they need to be offered opportunities to change their behavior and change the way they think. So you're not arguing, you're not arguing, Ellen, let them out? No. Yeah. I do believe we ought to have shorter sentences, and I think we for ought murder? for everything. Really? But it depends on the circumstances. Not, not every person who's in prison for murder is the same. They are as varied as you and I. And, and but the murdered person is still dead. A murdered person is still dead. That's true. I mean, if you, if you go all the way with victims' rights, well, very often, not always, but very often the victim's family want them locked up and the keys thrown away. Sure. I don't believe in that. I think we all make mistakes, And if it were your mistakes. kid, you would not believe in it? I hope not. I hope I'd have the courage not to. That's what the state legislators always say. I say, you're in the minority. When you get in the majority, you're going to behave differently. And they always say, I hope not. (laughs) Well, you know, I have a son who does death penalty work. And, you know, that's the most extreme example. I don't believe in the death penalty. I don't think anybody should. He's a lawyer. Yes. I think retribution doesn't get us anywhere. I think education is an investment in people. And basically, anybody who's committed a crime has transgressed against society, and they need to be educated into different ways of behaving and why the laws are there and all of that. 
also, in terms of murder, which you raised, if we had different gun laws, it would be quite a different situation. If these young kids who have AK-47s in their closets instead had a penknife, it would be a very different situation when they got in a fight over their girlfriend or whatever it is. The name of the book is Liberating Minds, The Case for College and Prison by the extraordinary Ellen Conliffe Lagerman. Okay, so you've been at some of the great institutions, Harvard and NYU <laughs> and all these other but places. Bard. And now you're at Bard. And Bard is a terrific place. I, I know so many kids who've gone and done so right. well there and really love it. So my question is, and I know that obviously Leon Botstein has a great deal to do with the programs, and you can do nothing but respect him for keeping up with the prison program when, in fact, everybody else is gone or so many people are gone. What is it about him that you think makes that commitment? Is it just a sense of fairness and social justice? I think it's a sense of fairness and social justice, and I think he believes in delegating to people he trusts. So Max Kenner, who is the person who founded the Bard Prison Initiative, did so as an undergraduate. And Leon basically set two requirements. First of all, you raise the money. You don't cost us anything. And secondly, you have to maintain the same standards inside the prison that we maintain on the main campus. And we've always done that. Uh, what are some of those standards? Oh, for a BA, you have to write a senior, it's called a senior project at Bard. It's a senior thesis. It's basically a 100-page research paper. They have to take many different kinds of courses, including advanced algebra or calculus. Many of them take Calculus three. Foreign language, we have students who speak German, French, Arabic, Chinese, as well as social science, art history, painting, the whole range. And so they, they meet the same requirements any college student would meet, only they do it under much more difficult circumstances. Now, I know that Leon Botstein is famous for having said when kids come to college, they need to be intensely taught how to read all over again. <laughs> Do you do that in prison, too? Yes. We start off with two weeks of intensive reading and writing instruction, following very much the same model that they use on the main campus at Bard. But if you're a white middle-class kid coming from 86th Street in Manhattan, you know, your reading issues may not be the same right. as a kid who really ends up in prison. Our people who were admitted to the Bard Prison Initiative are barely literate. They basically can't write a complete sentence. They haven't had experience figuring out what a paragraph is. The basic rules of reading and writing are not ones they have mastered. So we do not offer remedial instruction. Instead, we offer them challenging, highly intellectual work. We give them a grammar manual the second they're admitted to the program, and we tell them to learn it. And we all spend a lot of time working with them one-on-one -on -one to help them improve their reading and their writing. Are there dropouts? No. Really? No. The only dropouts are people who are moved to a different prison by the correctional authorities. And why would that happen, that move? Oh, they might be moved because they're going to be released soon. Yeah. They might be moved if there were a serious behavioral infraction, but that almost never Could happens. they say no? In other words, if they're in a BA program, you know, at Bard, in a prison, it would seem to me that they might not want to go. They can't say no, but we try to resist moving people. Really? Yeah. What do you do? We talk to the authorities in the prison, and we go up the chain all the way to the acting commissioner. That's right. Well, I take it you've met a lot of wardens in your time. I've met some. Yes. And their characters differ too, right? Oh, they differ tremendously. 
and the character of the warden sets the character of the prison. In many of the prisons where we work, the wardens are very much in favor of education, and they love what we're doing, so they support us. And it makes it infinitely easier than if you're in a prison where the warden isn't sure they want you in there and what are you doing here and where they are not so much in favor of education. Now, as a woman yes, in a male prison right. setting, and we know a lot of these guys have been cut off from women one way right. or the other, uh, what, is, what is that like? I mean, what, what do you sense in, in, in the tension that exists between you and the males? I thought it would be a problem. It's never been a problem. There's never been tension. I've never felt threatened or the, as if there were inappropriate behavior. It just hasn't been There's a problem. There's nothing sexist said. There's nothing no. about that. Yeah. And, and I don't censor what I say or what I teach. I really treat the students and treat the material I'm teaching exactly as I did when I was teaching Harvard undergraduates or people at Columbia or wherever. So let's be fair about this. What's the difference? <laughs> but the, the undergraduates. You know the what the difference yeah. is? Yeah. The students in prison are better students. They're older, for one. Which yeah, older is important. That's very important. They are very motivated. They want this college education, and they want it not just because they know it will help them get jobs, but they want it because they're craving knowledge. They're craving intellectual debate, and they get that in college, and they haven't had that experience before. Most of our students come from the least good schools that our society tolerates, and those are pretty bad. So they haven't had a challenging education to begin with, and most of them are very bright. And so the combination of now offering them challenge and the brightness they bring makes them very exciting students. Of course, the most recent experience we have all had with prisons is the daring escape of these two guys Yes, up in Dannemora in Clinton County. There, I want to go back to the sexism thing. There, they yes. were able to co-opt a prison employee. And since we have you here, and since you're an expert <laughs> on this, and, you know, basically they tried to make love to her to, right. to bring her over, and they succeeded, and she's serving time in prison. Right. What did you make of all of that? Well, I thought it was very sad all around, but I think she, as the person who was not the prisoner, yeah. had the responsibility to make sure that relationship didn't happen. And in my opinion, she failed more than they did. I mean, you know, the stories always are that people in prison will try anything. But if you're working in a prison, you have to be the mature one. You don't let anything escalate to the point that it did at Dannemora. But of course, as we know, there is a prison industry in New York State. Right. And it's upstate, which is unfortunate right. because a lot of the prisoners come from downstate um, and their families who can hardly afford it and, right. and can't make the trip and all the rest. So it is not surprising that in order to staff this prison industry, you hire on people who may not have Professor Longerman's sense of decor. Well, that happens, but it's up to the people who run the prison to make sure they're they're training and supervising people in the prison so there aren't problems. So is it your sense that we are not doing all we could in that area? And I know well, that you I, have to walk back into that prison and somebody <laughs> may be listening right now, but what about that? No, I, you know, I'm not an expert on all New York State prisons. Right. I've been to six of them intensely. Okay, I mean, I'll take the we, six intensely. And I would say they are all pretty well-running prisons. Yeah. Now, we're more downstate than what you're talking about. But I have not seen examples of poor supervision or problems. Okay. So if you had a magic wand 
and could, Ellen, wipe out prisons in New York State with that wand? So, poof, they're all gone. A, would you? And B, what would you replace them with? I would go look at the prisons in Scandinavia, which are very different from our prisons. The sentences are much shorter, and once people are in prison, they are given all sorts of educational advantages and programs. But it's a homogeneous population well, as opposed to... Well, less and to, less homogeneous. Yeah, but it has been. It has been historically. That's true. Yeah. But you asked me if I had a magic wand. I so did. I'm, it's your wand. I'm using my wand. So I'd get Scandinavian models. One of the things they do in Scandinavia is they let people go home for the weekend. And being more in touch with their family is hugely... Even for murder? Yes. Oh. Is hugely important. And so I think what I would do is transplant the Scandinavian model. But you would, of course, have to study it and suit it to the conditions here. So, But this, of course, brings up a major issue, which is the elephant in the room, which is racism. Yes. You want to talk about that a bit? Well, there's no question that racism is, I mean, the new Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander put it, is mass incarceration. And in the 1970s, coinciding with the urban riots and the civil rights movement, we began to lock up young minority males and now increasingly females. You can correlate all sorts of social policy changes to incarceration rates, and they all go against people who are black, brown. And my fear is increasingly it will be immigrants, too. But there's no question. Racism is at the root of a great deal of what we do along with a long history in the United States that goes back to the 1600s. Remember, we're a Puritan nation. We're not very forgiving of sin. And so in the drug wars, think about what the drug wars were about. I mean, marijuana is now being legalized in many places. We lock people up for hugely long times just for marijuana. In Bedford Prison, now that you've mentioned women, uh, somebody I've met in the past, Judith Clark, has been incarcerated for, I think, something like 60 years. Long time. Yeah. And I met her parents once and had a long talk with them about this. And now Governor Cuomo, yes, who has never been sort of a soft-on-crime type of guy, has commuted her sentence. Uh, and this has caused holy hell right. all over with the the because she was in on the Brinks robbery, and when you say in on, we don't really know what that means. She was she was going to drive the car. Right. And therefore, anybody who participated, and I know Kathy Boudin over the years and rest. So I guess the question is, should she be let go? And would that bring, because the the children of the, of the, uh, peop, the policemen who were killed are saying, hey, my father's not coming back. Right. I believe she should be let go. I don't think keeping her in prison is going to help bring the, the victims back, and it's not going to help society. It costs us a fortune to keep people in prison. We're much better off if they can go home and contribute to society. I would bet you, I don't know Judith Clark, you do. Not I would, really. <laughs> well, I would bet you she comes home and does something very constructive. Just like Kathy Boudin yes. did. Yeah. Yes. And she's done constructive things while she was in prison. I, I'll bet you she continues that. We're much better off having people outside of prison. Our people who have graduated from Bard and are released go home and not only get jobs and reunite with their families, but many of them become involved in rebuilding their communities. Wes Keynes, the man I mentioned who opened the door for me in my first class, is now on the board of the Brooklyn Bail Fund 
raising money to help people pay bail when they can't afford it to make sure particularly young people don't end up in Rikers just because they can't pay the bail to get out before their trial. That's the kind of citizen we need in this country, and we don't need him behind bars. Let me read you a paragraph from your excellent, oh book, excellent <laughs> book. No, 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 no. Um, uh, Liberating Minds, The Case for College in Prison. Um, and, and you write about a particular prisoner. Antoine may be a particularly impressive go-getter, but going to college in prison almost always enhances the chances that formerly incarcerated men and women will be successful when they return to their communities. Now, there are a couple of words in here which I was interested in was almost always <laughs> do that. So, so is that true? I mean, yes. have there been studies that show that? Yes. For the BARD program, we have a very, very, very low recidivism rate. And that is true for most college programs. Not only do people not come back to prison, and if you compare it to national statistics, where the rate of return approaches 50% across the nation, that's remarkable. But in addition to not returning to prison, people are employed. Most of our people are employed very quickly, and many of them have very responsible, well-paid jobs and they contribute not only tax money, but they contribute to the support of their, their families. One other point that's very important is that the children of people who are in prison are more likely themselves to go to prison. And if you can intervene in that intergenerational cycle and send the youngsters to college instead of to prison, we all benefit. So the people who come into the programs, though, have to be self-selecting. Right. In other words, you're talking about the creme de la creme, usually people who can have the intellectual capacity. When you recited all the things that Bard College demands, <laughs> you know, I don't know that I could have passed. Hard a, I don't know that I could have passed a trigonometry course. <laughs> right. So how do you answer that in terms of? You I are, think they are a yeah. self-selected group. We pick people according to our best judgment of their motivation, their aspiration, their perseverance, their likelihood to stick with this very tough program. So obviously something has happened to trigger their motivation. But I think there are many more people in prison who would like to go through a program like this than, than we currently serve or other college programs serve. We're not the only one by any means. Ellen Conliff-Lagerman has written a book called Liberating Minds, The Case for College in Prison. She's taught at some of the best institutions in the world, and now she's doing this. And you, as you can see, she's quite persuasive about what she's talking about. So you, however, just said something that made my ears stand up, and that is, we pick them. People have to ask for admission into the program, right? right. And you have to decide whether they're right. coming in or not. So in some ways, based on everything you've been telling us, you have a life and death uh, kind of um, responsibility here. Oh, it's a huge responsibility because people who are turned down, not only are they turned down for the program, but they risk humiliation amongst their peers in the prison. You couldn't even get in. Everybody knows who, who applied. However, they are allowed to reapply. And many of our best students have applied six, eight, you know, many times. No kidding. Yes. And they just keep coming back and keep coming back. And in between, they study and they improve their grammar and they, they read books and they do all sorts of things. And they eventually get in. But how about all those who can't get in? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, prisons should be reformatories. They should be correctional facilities. And in order to do that, they should have education that of many different kinds. 
so that different people can choose what they want. I I don't believe there are people in prison who don't want some kind of education. So it is, it's it's got to be, I mean, what you're talking about, it's got to be somewhat depressing personally for you. Well, it's not depressing because the people I work with are the people we've admitted. They're growing visibly in front of your eyes as they take all these classes we offer them. And then eventually they go home, and we see their success when they go home. We have hundreds of alums who are now in New York City and other places, and they're doing extraordinarily well. So that's Do they keep in touch with you? Yes. Really? Yeah. So is it depressing? Mass incarceration is depressing. Our sentencing policies are depressing. Well, but I'm not talking about... The racism is depressing. Um, yeah, that's all true. But I'm talking about you personally, Ellen. Do you walk around with the weight of the world on your shoulders? No, you know, I find every time I come home from teaching in a prison, my poor husband has to listen for hours as I recount all the things that happened in the class because there are always interesting comments, questions. I'm fired up by it, not depressed by it. I was talking to a group. Uh, they asked me to come over in Hudson to an incarceration place, and they brought me into the room, and I gave my talk, and the guy raised his hand, and he says, do you believe in the death penalty? I said, I don't know. I don't know. It depends on, you know, the case and all the rest. And the guy said, because you know that there are reasons that people commit murders. Remember that? He it, said that. He did. Yeah. There are reasons that people commit murder. I sort of shrugged my shoulders. When I got out of the room, the prison person said to me, now, Alan, you should know that every single person in that room is a murderer. And it really makes you think, all right. Well, many of our students were involved in murder. Uh I mean, the specific charge may vary. And one of the things that's important for us is to us, they are students. They are not murderers. We don't ask what their crimes were. If they tell us, we find out, but we never ask. Okay. So you have a lot of interesting chapters in your book. Let's go over some of them. Learning to learn, an outcome of college in prison. What do you mean learning to learn? Well, I think actually learning one field, one factoid, one way of thinking enhances your capacity to learn other ways of thinking and other factoids and fields. And so I think learning to learn is the most important outcome of any level of of education, particularly in higher education. And what is the evaluative method that you use as to whether somebody has learned to learn? Well, there is no hard science to evaluate it. But somebody who's learned to learn is eager for more learning. They're eager to go on. We can see in our students, many of whom might come into the program because they think it's going to help them when they go home. Pretty soon, they're wanting to take courses just because they're interested. They'll say, well, I think I'll take Shakespeare. My best example is a man who is still in prison, and I was his advisor, and he said, I can't take math, and he had to take math to get his bachelor's degree, and I said, sorry, you have to take math. Well, he fell in love with math. He became extremely good at math, and he went all the way through Calculus three. I mean, that's learning to learn. And learning to learn gives you the confidence that you can approach pretty much any task and conquer it. So now you've given a tool, the learning to learn tool, and yet the guy's still sitting in prison. Right. And that's got to be somewhat frustrating. Well, To know that you have achieved a level of excellence that you can't use. I have a student who finished his AA degree with us and his BA degree, and after that he taught himself Arabic. And then he had the imam in the prison teach him how to chant the Koran, which apparently is very difficult to do correctly. 
And then he created math tutorial sections for other people who were not in the college program. And he's constantly teaching other people. He teaches Arabic. He teaches all sorts of things. So they find ways on their own to continue their intellectual quest. And we also have set up post-graduate uh, classes in public health, in c computer skills, in food. We have gardens in two of our prisons, maybe three of our prisons now, because we're teaching about public health and food and organic gardening and all of that, because we have to offer them continuing opportunities till they're released. How do you recruit other teachers? It's not hard. People who teach in, in the Bard Prison Initiative love it. So one person brings another. Most of our faculty comes from Bard. The other come from neighboring institutions, SUNY or Vassar or Duchess Community. They all have terminal degrees, in other words, a PhD or whatever. The teaching is fun. Everybody says it's the best teaching they've ever done. As you've said, I've taught at some pretty fabulous places and had wonderful students, but I wouldn't trade what I'm doing now for anything. Well, that has to do with you. You mentioned your husband. What does he do? A lawyer, securities litigator. A securities litigator yeah. living with somebody with this kind of mission. <laughs> That's fascinating. Does it meld, as we used to say in arts? And oh, he, he's really interested in the prison program. He comes to all our graduations, and he's met any number of our people. Once they get out, it's easier to have friendships with them, and so he's met them. He thinks it's great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Okay, so we, we learn to learn. Now, I know that you have a very powerful message about if you educate people, they won't return. The recidivism will be limited, and they will be helpful in an economic sense to the society. Maybe you could riff on that for a minute. Well, would you rather have somebody who's going to be your neighbor educated or not educated? I'd rather have an educated neighbor who can go out and get a job, earn a salary, support his family, and not get into trouble because they have no alternative. There's no question that people who have a college credential are more likely to be looked at by employers who otherwise simply see they've been in prison and they aren't going to talk to them. So it's hugely important in terms of employment. It's very important in terms of success in jobs. And it doesn't drain the society. Prisons are a drain on the public purse. They're extremely expensive. In New York State, it costs upward of $50,000 to keep somebody in prison. That's huge. A year. A year. Yeah. And it costs $5,000 to send them to college. question is, which would you rather do? Would you rather invest in the human capital of educating a person, or would you rather invest in having them sit there and play checkers for 10 years? What about when they get out and the person next door doesn't particularly want an ex-con living next door? Well, they have to deal with it. We have a reentry program so that people who've been to Bard, and this is true for other college programs too, when they come home and face all sorts of challenges, and that's the least, frankly. I mean, there's bias in every aspect of human relations they encounter. Uh, they can call and talk to somebody about how to handle it and figure out what to do. But, you know, people are biased against people who've been to prison for all sorts of reasons, and it's not just they don't want them living next door. They don't want to hire them. They don't want their kids playing with their kids, and it's a stigma. So do you ever have to lobby your case? In other well, words, I think I'm lobbying right now. Well, you are, but I'm talking about do you folks go to the legislature? Do you, do you talk to the governor's people? Yes. Uh, what do you do? Yes. Max Kenner, who is the executive director of the Bard Prison Initiative, does a lot of that. And he leads that effort. I've 
pulled back and done less of that. I've done a lot of that in terms of education over the years, but I haven't played a very active role. But I think actually, in addition to lobbying legislators and governors and so on, who tend to understand the issues better than the public, the they should because more and more of them are going to prison. <laughs> yes. It's a little joke. Okay, so so they're listening right now. We know that. There's federal policy. There's state policy. Right. Is there anything on the feds that affect what you're doing? Well, federal policy has to do with the Pell Grant program and who's eligible and who's not eligible. So it has deeply to do with the finance. So what would you say also, to Congressman John Faso, your congressman, who is I listening say, to this right now? I would say a lot of things to Congressman John Faso. But in terms of criminal justice policy, I would say to him that it is not productive to bar prisoners from Pell Grants because the more education they have, the more they can invest in our economy in New York State, which needs investment. Yeah, And you think that the current administration, the Trump administration, has every intention of doing away with Pell Grants? Oh, that would be my guess. I mean, session, Attorney General Sessions is talking about undoing consent decrees in any number of cities, that directly affects Consent the, decrees, which would say, you know, cops can't beat up on black people with impunity. Right. And that has a huge amount to do with who goes to prison and all of the issues we've been talking about. Okay. Another chapter is instilling purpose, which is fine, curbing violence. So curbing violence. Are there studies? I'm not sure there are studies, but I've talked to any number of wardens, not just New York State, all uh-huh. over the country. And they will tell you that if you have a college program, it tends to reduce the violence in a prison. It does because the people in the program want to stay in the program, and they they have a purpose. They become engaged in their classes, so they don't get in trouble. They don't break rules. They don't cause problems. And they often become the, the people other prisoners emulate. Yeah, but is there a problem with um, a class structure between those who have achieved this and those who haven't? There is, I suspect, and that's unfortunate. I mean, we ought to have education of various kinds available for everybody in prison. Then the class structure would be mitigated. As it is, yes, there is a class structure. So, you know, you're raising... Well, could that lead to violence? It could, but overcrowding leads to violence. I like you so much because you... (laughs) You know, you never lie. You just say, you know, it could. Yeah. Well, but you know, one of the important, th- I deeply believe in college and prison, but it's not a panacea. There is no panacea for mass incarceration. We need to do many things, and we need to do them all at once. And it's vitally important for our society that we do that. I mean, it's part of undoing the legacy of slavery. I think you are exactly right on that, because this is, as you said earlier in the program, part of the new Jim Crow. Oh, Absolutely. So then the subtext here is the impact of college on life in prison. Explain that. Well, as one of our students said to me one day, each one of us, say 100 people who are, is in the college program, has 10 friends who are not in the college program. And if we spend our time in the yard talking to our 10 friends about Shakespeare or about calculus or teaching them Arabic or whatever we might be doing, they're not going to be fighting. Or they might hate you and fight with you, which well, we have just appar- covered. Apparently, that's not the case. Okay. You know, you, you have to remember that those of us who teach in these kinds of programs are searched at the gate, we're escorted to wherever our classes are, we teach our classes, and we have to leave. 
so we don't hang around in the cells in the yard and so on. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't have direct information to answer all of your questions. But there are volumes of Well, you would know better than I do because you were there and I'm not. Well, my, my impression is that there is no question that when people have productive things to do, they're less likely to get in trouble and they're less likely to fight. Why fight if you can do something better? Tell us about the families and what the relationship between going to college and being in a family, having children, having you know a wife or a husband, what, right. what is that like? Well, all the evidence indicates, and a lot of sociologists have studied this, that people who've been to college or who were enrolled in college are able to reunite with their families more successfully than those who are, have not. For families of people in prison, the experience of having somebody in prison is often humiliated. They don't want the children to know. They don't want the kids to go to school and say, my daddy's in prison. So they'll tell them, oh, your daddy's away with the army or your daddy's away doing something. And if the kids instead can be in close touch with their parents, it's much, much better. There are visiting days. There are family visits, family reunion visits, where people can stay in trailers behind the prison for a day or two. And all of that is good. But apparently, the college experience and the fact that somebody is in college is a big positive in family relations. Our students tell us over and over again that they talk to their children on the phone about their homework because they're doing homework, too. And one of my students told me that when his daughter was in college, they used to compare how many pages they'd written that day and those kinds of things. It, it gives a positive something to talk about. Another of my students has to call his mother every week, and her first question is, are you going to class? And they really want them to succeed. These are people who, by and large, did not finish high school on the outside and were not educationally successful. And now they're being stars. Indeed. Chapter 7, what works? What does work? <laughs> what works? That actually is a chapter about one of the most unfortunate articles in the history of social policy in the United States, which was published in the public interest in the early 1970s, which claims nothing works to, quote, rehabilitate prisoners. It distorted the evidence. It was totally repudiated by its author, but the topic line, what works, nothing works, stuck. And it helped to feed the effort to get rid of Pell Grants, to lock people up, to get rid of college and prison, and so on. It's helped feed the tough on crime line. So what works? Education works. Giving people opportunities to develop new skills, new senses of themselves, a new sense of agency. And education is tremendously powerful when it's well done. As I said before, it's not a panacea, but it's certainly helpful. When you said that, that study was repudiated by its author, what did he say after he closed he, it? He wrote another article that appeared not in the public interest, which was a widely circulated journal at the time, but in the Hofstra Law Review. Yeah. And almost nobody read the article. It was not cited anywhere, whereas his public interest article is quoted all over the place. His name was Robert Martinson. He had an interesting career. He was involved in the civil rights movement. He was arrested in the South, which got him interested in prison reform. He basically didn't believe prison should exist. He was then hired to work on a prison study in New York State after Attica. 
and this led to the evidence he wrote about in the What Works article. But the What Works article was edited and distorted, and it was used to push the conservative line. Mm. I could go on and write a whole book just about that article. Amazing. Talk to me about yourself a little bit, about your parents. You know, obviously, you are who you are. I often talk to people who we talk to in this particular program about the values that they have and whether they got them from their parents. Did you? That's an interesting question. I've often wondered that. My parents were both quite liberal and quite well-educated and certainly would have been pleased with what I'm doing, but neither of them was directly involved in anything to do with prisons. They actually met each other working on refugee issues at the end of World War II. So clearly there was some social conscious message and my younger brother is also involved in prison work. So two out of three of us are doing prison-related things. And what did they do for a living? My father was in the travel business, and my mother was a social worker. Yeah. And where did you grow up? New York City in the Bronx. Wow. You don't sound like you're from the Bronx. <laughs> yeah, but I am. <laughs> I'm deeply from the Bronx. I remember the old Yankee Stadium. Are you proud of it? I certainly am. I wish it were still there. Yeah. I went to school in the Bronx. I went up to Hunter. and Oh, yeah. Yes. My nieces all went to Hunter. Yeah, yeah. Well, they went downtown. Yes. But Uptown was in the Bronx also. It's now Lehman College. But oh, was, yes. Yeah, that was, well, it was Bronx community for a while, wasn't it? I don't know whether they changed it, but I do know that the reason it became Lehman College as opposed to Hunter Uptown was because the Bronx was the only one that did not have a city university campus. That makes sense. You know, yeah. in it, yeah. which, which is interesting. Well, the Bronx is still neglected. Well, we could... Alan Alda's wife wrote a book, and she was on this program talking about it. Really? Yes, about the Bronx, about people who had come from the Bronx. Do you think there's any message for you personally? <laughs> I mean, look at you. You're incredibly achieved. What in the world what were the values of the Bronx? We were threatened in the Bronx. No, we, no, no. We walked around. Well, I came from a middle-class family. I had lots of privileges. But I'm very proud of the fact that when I talked to some of our students in the prison, we all know the same corners on Fordham Avenue and sure. various places. I mean, it does establish a commonality. Did you ever go back? Oh, I go back all the time. My mm -hmm. brother lives in Riverdale, which is an affluent that's, part of the that's Bronx. That's not really I the know. Bronx. It's not. <laughs> so are you close with your sibling? Yes. And what do you think motivated that closeness? In other words, is there any reason that oh. you should be close? Some yeah, brothers are not close. These questions are way beyond my book. I haven't thought about all these questions. Well, that's what we like to do here. Yes. Because I think people are always interested in the person, you know. I don't know what makes us so close. Maybe because we were both redheads. You can't tell it now, but it was true. Yeah. Were and you subject to insults because you were redheaded? Yes, and I hated it. The editor of the Albany Times Union is Rex Smith. And his wife, Marion Roach Smith, wrote a book on redheads. Really? Yes, a whole book on, on what it's like to be a redhead. Oh, I hated it. Yeah. But maybe because David and I were both redheaded. He was two years younger than I was, so I could probably tell him what to do. Maybe I liked that. Yeah, yeah. I may have been bossy. I don't know. But then he shouldn't like me. And our families like each other. We're really very close. What was Harvard like? Harvard is a very interesting bubble. Everybody there is incredibly smart and incredibly talented, yeah. and you spend your life fending off reporters' calls. People don't take teaching as seriously as they do at Bard. I mean, people take teaching seriously, but there are too many other things going on. And though they will deny this, you're promoted for what you write more than for how you teach. Well, isn't that always true? It's isn't less, that one of the real problems with the academy? Yes, it certainly is. 
but it's less true at teaching colleges than at research universities, and it's less true at places like Bard, which genuinely value teaching. Harvard values, I mean, so does Bard, having your name in lights, but there is a different emphasis. But it is one of the huge problems in the academy. I think so. I mean, I got to be full professor fairly early at New Paltz and the rest, but I had to really swim upstream. And if I hadn't written a book or if I hadn't done this or that, it would not have been doable. Well, when I was at Columbia and about to be promoted full professor, I was founding a school in Newark, New Jersey, and my department chair told me to get out of Newark and come back and finish a book if I wanted to be promoted. Oh, sure. So I came back and I finished the book. The school got started, but it, it wasn't the school I started. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So when you have to mark a whole bunch of papers... I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) You and everybody else. It's probably why I retired. It may be why I retire. (laughs) So yeah, that's a lot of hard work, isn't it? Oh, it sure is. My Aunt Ruth, who is the dean at uh, Hunter, Aunt Ruth Weintraub, her husband... Solomon, who is a doctor, used to um, tell me that he helped his wife by throwing them down the stairs. And if they landed landed on the front row, you got an A. Nobody can believe how long it takes to grade a paper. Not if you're doing it right. Because you really have to read the paper, then you have to go over it again and write comments. And And when you have 146 of them, that's a lot. In the prison program, we do senior projects, which are these long theses, 100 pages. It goes over a year and a half developing. Those take forever to work on and write and help them through that. Well, that's so. a lot. Do you have faculty meetings? The bar prison initiative? Yes. There's a staff meeting at the beginning of every semester because we're deployed through six different facilities, so the issues are really quite different. Bard has faculty meetings. I don't go. Well, let me say this. In addition to the um, paper marking problems I had, the faculty meetings were even worse. I've given up faculty meetings. I'm too old to go to faculty meetings. You don't have to go? I don't go. Anybody ever raise that with you? No. Well, you know, I have sort of an unusual appointment at Bard. But I used to go to faculty meetings. I used to run faculty meetings when I was at Harvard. Yeah. I hated that. I mean, it's worse to run a faculty meeting than to sit in a faculty meeting. These people can be very angry, can't they? Oh. The stakes are so low that they fight all yeah. the time. I mean, the stakes are your parking space and a few other things. Your teaching load. Do you have to teach on Friday? God forbid. Yeah. I remember that all too well. I once got into a fistfight with a guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you asked about violence in prison. <laughs> yeah, right. Faculty, in a faculty meeting over, over a tenure case. And boy, oh. tenure can be really... Oh, tenure is And when you're tough. the dean or when you're the oh, chair. Oh, it's really tough. Yeah, especially at a place like Harvard. Well, Harvard, there is this so-called standard whereby you're, you're meant to be the best in the world in your field. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. But anyway, it's very hard to get tenure at Harvard. There are many levels of decision, more than than is true at most places. It's one of those places that if you don't get tenure at Harvard, you can survive as an academic. Whereas in other places, if you don't get tenure, goodbye, Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the tenure system, I, I actually believe in tenure because I think it's closely related to academic freedom. But the tenure system is under threat in many institutions. And I think that's too bad. Including the one you teach at, right? I mean, they give contracts yes. at, at Bard as yes. opposed to Simon's tenure. Rock. And so, Simon's Rock, where I am not any yes. longer. But yeah, but there there right. comes that point when you say, okay, we'll have a contract that'll last for five years or, or maybe, ten years or maybe or ten years. But on the tenth year, on that last day, <laughs> you may tough. do something that right. you may do something That's that right. really ticks somebody off. That's right. 
That's right. Yeah. Do you see any, and we only have two minutes, but do you see any, I'm having so much fun, do you see any relationship between prisons and academic departments? Well, no. <laughs> I don't think I do. Prisons are institutions where you're locked up and you're walled off from the world. And academic departments should be porous institutions that work with other departments. That doesn't mean they do. So maybe in that sense, a department is a prison. I mean, you know your colleagues, but you don't go outside. So if you're a sociologist or a political scientist right. or rest, I remember, I remember I was up in the New Pulse cafeteria once, when it used to be in our faculty tower, and, and there was a guy sitting next to me and pointed to a guy over there and said, that guy's a historian, he's stupid. <laughs> And well, he, I would have said he's, he's stupid. stupid. Yeah, you're right. Well, of course. He's stupid, and he doesn't even know it. Which is one of the oh, big, dear. big... You know, I mean, there is there is sort of this rivalry between... Well, there um, is a rivalry because budgets are are departmental, and people care nah, about their budgets. You know, I just think but it's different. There's also a hierarchy amongst fields. I mean, people in history look down on all the social sciences sure. as too soft. Yeah. So, and then of course, appellations are applied to, for example, sociologists are right. supposed to be Marxists, and this is right. to, it's not true, but it does. Right. Hello, it's not true. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it is fascinating the way that institutions can, I think, mimic each other. That competition in one in one oh. place. I mean, it, it, well, it is the basis of human. You know that book by David Reisman and Christopher Jenks called the Academic Revolution. Sure where they talk about academic institutions being like a snake. Everybody's lined up behind Harvard, and everybody's imitating the place in front of them, and the top of the snake is Harvard. Wow. Now, who knows if that's true? It's a lot less true than it was. That's an old book. Well, this has been such a pleasure. We've been talking to Dr. Ellen Condliff-Lagerman, the Levy Institute Research Professor at Bard College and Distinguished Fellow in the Bard Prison Initiative. Her new book is, and it's a good one, get it, Liberating Minds, The Case for College in Prison. Thank you so much for being with us, Ellen. I've enjoyed this much more than I thought I was going. <laughs> Thank you, Al. been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.